You're in the back seat, driving down the motorway. Head against the window, the engine hums in your skull. It's early morning. The sun is low but bright, and the fields are pale with frost. You can't remember where you've come from, or where you're going. But for some reason, none of that matters. You pass bridges, reservoirs, farms and service stations. Naked trees whip by. You listen. Moving like this, each window is a cinema screen. You find it easy to think. Ideas keep pace with the weaving cars and lumbering trucks and the regular beat of the street lamps. There are people back home, family, friends, but today it feels as though they don't exist. You like it here, encased in metal, travelling fast. You could live your whole life in a car. Welcome to CAR. This is a new podcast that we're running from the RCA. And I'm sitting in the bedroom recording this on my own. Later on, there'll be some information about how you can get involved with CAR and um, contribute ideas and and audio and stuff um but first of all let's get started with episode one the last recorded transcript of preparations for Mission One-Way Ticket, a space exploration project spearheaded by Mr. Joseph Popper. Please be aware that since this recording was made, all communication with Popper has ceased. He is, however, thought to be very much alive. It is estimated that he is drifting ever closer to Galactic Central Point. Zero gravity, zero hope.
The one-way trip into deep space will be made in three phases. Passing Mars, it will essentially be a flyby trip, and no landing will be attempted. For the first phase, a spacecraft carrying a single astronaut will launch from the Earth's surface in a rocket ship. Here we have a diagram of the rocket, showing the spacecraft located on top and the two launch stages below. On board, the astronaut will be free from compulsory exercise and their physique and posture will change considerably as the voyage progresses. The rocket is set for launch on the 11th of March 2016. Here we have a drawing of the Earth, with Mars nearly 40 million miles away. Upon reaching lower Earth orbit, the spacecraft will keep circling the Earth unpowered until it can be fired towards Mars. At the appropriate time, the spacecraft will ignite an impulsive burn to achieve the correct direction and speed for an interplanetary transfer. The ship will then coast for 258 days, following a curved path before reaching lower Mars orbit. Here, with the Earth shrinking from view, the astronaut will encounter the first bouts of extreme boredom and feelings of loneliness and isolation. The spacecraft will then circle the red planet in a polar orbit for a period of one calendar month. When ready, the engine will burn for the last time, sending the ship away from Mars and outward towards the main belt of asteroids. It is around here that we expect the effects of prolonged weightlessness to have severely altered the human body as we know it. The ship will then coast again. Moving onward along a steady curve, its course will aim towards distant Jupiter. After around 730 days, and a distance of three astronomical units, over three times the Earth's distance from the Sun, the final meal rations on board the spacecraft will be consumed, and the oxygen reserves will be nearing their limit. For the astronaut, this signals that their trip will be nearing its end while the spacecraft will continue to coast further and further into the depths of space. ashen-skied wastes of nuclear fallout to the glimmering elevations of potential cities, all possible worlds of their possible cuisines. Science fiction films have often sought to represent the future source of human sustenance, be it the functional sterility of the food pill or the repugnant putrescence of harvested human flesh. In some instances, these imagined foods provide the locus of an expansive narrative 
usually based on the depletion of Earth's natural resources. In others, it appears on the margins, a little taste of a potential reality. Jamie Sutcliffe samples the gastronomic delights and horrors of five science fiction classics. O one sixteen thirty two. Sarah Connor is eating a final hamburger on the road to Judgment Day. She seems pensive. The processed bun is remarkably smooth, bronzed and seamless. It sits substantially between her fingers. She courts it with listless bites, full-lipped retrievals exposing the corn-yellow caked interior of the manufactured bread. This is gas station food, the fugitive fare of the outlaw's province. An Arizonan heat haze hangs heavy all round, and I can imagine the bun slipped from a polythene bag by a Mexican chef with a dubious past, tossing its faultlessly moulded halves to toast on a flat griddle alongside a spatula-flattened beef patty. This sandwich is a momentary reprieve from the endless driving and running, allowing Sarah Connor the space for contemplation while she eats. And since Sarah Connor contemplates nothing but the imminent nuclear eradication of any habitable Earth by a race of technologically advanced machines, the taste of that burger has to be pretty good, right? A new life awaits you in the off-world colony. The chance to begin again in a golden land of opportunity and adventure. In the early 80s, the future was Japanese. The country's burgeoning technocracy found its economic peak around the turn of the decade, influencing Ridley Scott's conception of a future Los Angeles, acquiescent to Japanese technological and cultural innovation. Blade Runner imagined an ethnically diverse metropolis of the disenfranchised, dominant classes being prone to interplanetary migration where diasporic cultures congregated in neon-bathed markets and rain-slicked alleyways strewn with the unmistakable tokens of Japanese industry. An only scene depicts the film's protagonist, Deckard, a police-sanctioned hunter of renegade artificial humanoids, perched at a noodle bar, capably separating a pair of bamboo chopsticks. He runs each stick along the length of the other, in anticipation of his order. A bowl of noodles emerges from the kitchen amid spectacular plumes of steam billowing into the vibrancy of the city night. He draws sumptuous tangles from the fragrant broth. The wholesome, dripping knots appear alien in this strange context. But the noodles are a fetishistic set-piece, their tendrils adequately exotic. What's more intriguing about the scene is Deckard's fluency with the protocols of oriental dining a familiarity that betrays an immersion in the culture of the new masters. He said you're under arrest, Mr. Decker. Got the wrong guy, pal. 
What's this crap supposed to be? Asked Private Spunkmeyer over breakfast on the USS Saleco, an interplanetary transportation vessel. Looks like the new lieutenant's too good to eat with the rest of us, Grants. Boy's definitely got a corn cob up his ass. Cornbread, I think, responds Corporal Dwayne Hicks. An indication that the all-inclusive breakfast is just as terrible on the other side of the galaxy as it is on this. The road provides no explanation for the scorched earth it presents. Nuclear holocaust, eco-catastrophe, or the natural dissolution of our solar system's largest star. The circumstances of our planet's decline are left to conjecture. The charred remains of what once stood for the civilised North American continent are simply acrid accretions of soot and ash. A world of profound despair characterised by lawlessness, rape and cannibalism. The few good souls left amongst the ruins, those who carry the fire, are less inclined to indulge the last taboo and opt instead for the scavenging of tinned foodstuffs buried in the endless rubble. This act provides one of the few moments of joyful reprieve for the film's protagonists, a father and son who, while searching through the scorched remnants of a gas station's toppled vending machines, unearth a chilled can of Coca-Cola. Cormac McCarthy's terse prose from the original novel emphasises the sensuality of this experience in its utter simplicity. He leaned his nose to the slight fizz coming from the can, then handed it to the boy. Go ahead, he said. The boy took the can. It's bubbly, he said. Go ahead. In a world truly depleted of all resources, a world trudging slowly toward its own extinction, the modest beverage offers a saccharine index of the world that once was. It's a perfect instance of product placement, because the product couldn't be anything else. Fanta, Lilt, even Pepsi. None occupy the archetypal domain of carbonated splendour in the way that Coca-Cola does. Against this backdrop of abyssal nothingness, this is the best Coca-Cola ever. I want this to be my experience of Coca-Cola. I want every Coca-Cola I ever taste to have the same unearthly quality as this Coca-Cola. It's bubbly. <laughs> 1973's Silent Green a simplistic adaptation of Harry Harrison's novel of critical overpopulation, Make Room, Make Room, took the book's original notion of soya-based processed foods and exaggerated their shortage into a clandestine industry based on the normalised consumption of processed human flesh. Figured as small slates of gaudy pigmentation, Soylent's yellow and red are sold on crowded markets to a half-starved populace. Supplies run dangerously low before the miraculous appearance of green, a new product of dubious origin. 
At one point in the film, an assassin stalks through a bustling crowd with a single square of soylent green, casually breaking corners from it with his teeth. Its shape and density are reminiscent of dark chocolate. Indeed, it seems to break with the very same cake texture of dark chocolate or moist biscuit. His mannerisms are disturbingly recognisable, betraying an ease with the suspicious stuff. He walks and savours, and it seems possible, chillingly possible, that he finds in the Soylent a source of comfort. From the RCA, this is Car. You can find out more about current and future Car episodes at our website. Email us at car at rca.ac.uk. That was quite sensual, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Definitely. Um.